Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Very interesting episode. Touched on DeFi. Trigger warning. But done the right way, hopefully. Uh, I sat down with Matthew Black from Atomic Finance. Uh, formerly Atomic Loans. actually don't know if they've officially made the switch yet. Sorry, Matt, if I'm blowing up your spot here. But uh, to talk about his experience uh, building out a non-custodial Bitcoin collateralized loan uh product on ethereum why he's moving off of ethereum and how he thinks uh, uh bitcoin uh, is a better platform to build on specifically for things like dlcs and smart contracts uh very interesting episode very uh inspiring young young man we have in matthew black he's only 22 and he's building some incredible products so you guys are going to enjoy this episode this episode is brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking cash app. You should know about them, but if you don't know about them, let me tell you about them. The cash app is helping us do many things. They're helping to stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats, if you so please. It's sats, 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 because sats is the standard. We're not buying fractions of Bitcoin anymore. We are buying whole sats, stacking whole sats. Uh, on top of that, you can DCA into sats, you can dollar cost average. You can set it and forget it. One day... Excuse me, daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Uh, if you have a certain amount of Bitcoin uh, that you want to stack on a, on a set cadence, you can you can do that via the Cash App. On top of that, they have Cash App Investing, with allow, which allows you to invest in slivers of stonks. If you're into the stonk market, you can stack a sliver of a stonk now via the Cash App. If your favorite stonk's a little too expensive, you can buy as little as $1. Because all this is connected directly to your bank account, there's no four- to five-day waiting periods to start investing. You can start investing today, okay? Um, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. As always, make sure you use the code STACKINGSATS. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. Hope you guys enjoy this episode with Matthew. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your life. Be happy that we're here. Take advantage of the fact that you are here. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a cool Tuesday evening, second podcast of the day. Uh, Matthew, you'll be uh, interested to hear this is... The second podcast of the day in a different state. The first podcast was recorded this morning outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now I'm back in South Jersey in Cape May County. I'm sitting down with Matthew Black, co-founder of Atomic Loans. And we're here to talk about a lot of things today. Matthew, how the hell are you doing? I'm doing great, Marty. Yeah, it's, we, have a, we have quite a bit to talk about. We've... Uh... We've been we've been we've been moving more into the uh, the Bitcoin space lately and leaving Ethereum. So uh, so it's it's going to be interesting. Yeah, there's a, a very controversial project. Atomic Loans is uh, 
people shit on you for being on Ethereum, and then people are shitting on you for leaving Ethereum. So uh, you're between a rock and a hard place, it seems. And we'll uh, try to to pull on the thread to how you got to this point. So first, like, how did you come to start Atomic Loans? I guess we should define Atomic Loans, what you guys offer uh, as a platform, and why you are transitioning. I guess we can uh, elaborate on each part of that a little bit, a little bit longer. I can come back to those questions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess we should probably start with, you know, how I originally got into Bitcoin. Um, it was actually my, you know, back in 2014, it was my, my dad that actually introduced me to Bitcoin. He's a, uh, he's just, you know, he's a bit of a gold bug, uh, <laughs> has uh, you know, gold underneath his bed and whatnot. And, uh, and so, so he introduced me to it. Um, you know, I was kind of just managing his funds for him. And uh, kind of, you know, forgot about it for a little bit. And then it was, it was in 2017 where, uh, you know, I was at, um, you know, Tony and myself, co-founder of, of Atomic Loans, we were at, uh, you know, University of Waterloo. Um, he was my roommate. I wouldn't shut up about uh, kind of what was happening in, in Bitcoin and, and, you know, in the crypto space in general. And, and we were actually roped back into the space, you know, being developers, um, you know, we, we got roped into kind of what was happening in Ethereum. I think, you know, they, they create kind of a, a you know, on, on the face of things, they, they make it very um, appealing to developers with all the developer tools and, uh, and ended up working on uh, actually atomic swaps uh, between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And it was there. Uh, actually working at LaQuality that I learned a lot more uh, about the Bitcoin side of things, you know, Bitcoin scripts, um, uh, went down the rabbit hole of, of what is sound money and, uh, and, and, and what are the kind of assurances that Bitcoin brings, brings to the table that, you know, just is not, um, you, you know, not comparable with, with Ethereum per se. And so, uh, and so after working on kind of atomic swaps and, 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 you know, kind of the cross chain aspect of things, um, we realized, well, there really isn't any, any type of um, kind of financial tools for Bitcoin, you know, that were really non-custodial at the time. You know, you had, you had the ability to do finally atomic swaps um, with Bitcoin, but, you know, there really wasn't a way to be able to, um, you know, get access to, say, um, you know, liquidity, um, you know, without giving up custody of your Bitcoin, for example. You know, and, and the example I give is, you know, we were, we were moving to Toronto. Um, you know, our landlord wanted four months rent up front and uh, we didn't want to sell our Bitcoin, you know, to pay for it. And so a Bitcoin backed loan is perfect for that. But in you know, today's environment, really, the only ways to do that is, uh, you know, is, is to lock, um, lock it up in, you know, in the custody of, um, of, a, of, of, a, of, an, of an institution. Um, and, and of course, you know, many different ones have, have different, uh, uh, you know, kind of, kind of different um, uh, risks involved with them. Uh, but but we really didn't want to do that. So we ended up, we said, hey, let's build, let's go out and build um, something that allows for the creation of non-custodial Bitcoin backed loans. And at the time, really, the only way to do that, the only way to be able to get access to any type of, um, you know, like fiat in a trust minimized way was with a stable coin, which happened to be on Ethereum. And so we said, you know, let's go build, you know, a cross chain thing that allows for non-custodial Bitcoin backed loans. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of how uh, Atomic Loans was born. More recently, we've been, um, you know, kind of more concerned with kind of what's happening in the Ethereum space and the kind of degen activity that's been going on. It's just really not in line with our values. And um, so we're going in a bit of a different direction. Let's dive into that a little bit. What specifically about it? The fact that, or I won't put any words in your mouth. What, uh, what about the quote unquote degeneracy that's playing out in the DeFi world rubs you the wrong way? 
Yeah, I think I think part of it was for for us, like our our goal was always to build, um, you know, sound infrastructure for sound money. And the reality is that um, a lot of aspects of Ethereum are not particularly sound. I mean, obviously, we have the um, the supply of Ethereum, uh, you know, concerns a bit, but also the there's a lot of questions I think around the 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 architecture. So I mean, recently, uh, you know, if if you think of if if you think of for example, you know, Tether or the various tokens that are printed on uh, Ethereum, a lot of people don't realize that those are very parasitic to the underlying chain itself. Um, you know, anyone can go and print a token and drive up uh, gas freeze um, by you know exorbitant amounts, and and there's nothing anybody can do about that. Um, meanwhile, you have a situation where the uh, the scaling solution, solutions for Ethereum are, are kind of all over the place, right? You've got um, you've got you know radio networks, darkware, and each each L you know layer two for Ethereum has their own token. Um, you know when you compare that to Bitcoin, where you have Lightning Network and everyone's kind of collaborating on the same thing um, to build a standard across the entire ecosystem. And so for us, um, I mean, I think uh, to be honest, for us, one of the problems was we realized that if we wanted to compete in the um, in building non-custodial Bitcoin-backed loans, and we wanted to build that that had anything to do with the Ethereum space, we were going to have to launch our own token, and we just were not comfortable ever doing that because why? Why do? You, why should you ever launch a token when you know there's perfectly sound money like Bitcoin that exists? Yeah, I guess that's been a huge meme: uh, Bitcoin on Ethereum, wrapped BTC. I think I just saw the uh, Matt Luongo and James Preshwitz Preshwitz just relaunched TBTC. Uh, and it's a bit confusing, right? Because is there really any Ethereum, or excuse me, Bitcoin on Ethereum? You can't send Bitcoin to an Ethereum address. So I guess uh, you have uh, up close and personal experience with these wrapped Bitcoin products. How do they work, and how is the the uh, description of the of Bitcoin on Ethereum potentially misleading? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the reality is that these. These bitcoins that are on Ethereum, yeah, I, you're completely right, Mario. Like these these bitcoins that are on Ethereum are not on Ethereum. They're Bitcoin IOUs at the end of the day. And anytime you have a Bitcoin IOU, it doesn't have the same assurances that real Bitcoin does. Um, so you've you, we've seen really um, two types of uh, Bitcoin on Ethereum that have been the most successful. One is WBTC, which is simply custodied by Bitcoin uh, by BitGo. And so uh, you know, in reality, BitGo is. Um, is a custodian for many things, you know, many, many exchanges. And so it's no different than putting it on, on an exchange. And the other one is by uh, REN BTC. Now, uh, REN is actually a more concerning situation because they, um, right now it's really just custodied by the team. I think, I think six, uh, six team members or so are just custodying, uh, custodying I think, uh, over $200 million worth of Bitcoin. Um, it's supposed to be uh, this decentralized network, but that's a work in progress for them. And so the majority of the Bitcoin that's on Ethereum is really, uh, you know, custody by a small number of, of, uh, of people and it's a Bitcoin IOU. Um, TBDC is trying to do something a little bit different, uh, but the challenge that they run into is, is, uh, in, is all the Bitcoin that's locked uh, for TBDC needs to be backed by Ethereum. And so why, why should I, you know, why should the value of my Bitcoin that's being moved around be backed by an asset like Ether, um, not to mention the uh, exorbitant gas fees that are required to to mint it are, are, are uh, quite concerning. I think it was one hundred and forty dollars, uh, you know, today. Yeah, it seems really ironic for a project uh, whose founder, at one point within the last few years, said the Internet of Money should not cost more than five cents for a transaction, 
it seems like uh, the people who would need to get transactions uh, confirmed for, for five cents or less are getting priced out of that network specifically. Uh, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's just a disingenuous, to me at least, a just disingenuous uh, description of how these networks should work. Like Bitcoin embraces that. Like we're going to need higher fees to have higher security assurances and we're trying to push the uh the low cost payment network above the protocol level uh it seems like ethereum as a project uh will virtue signal one way at a certain point in time and then uh just manipulate the narrative uh in their favor when when things go against that hence today uh defi is blowing up minor fees are going up uh, and therefore, Ethereum is, is successful when success was defined only a few years ago as being able to send transactions at very low fees. So it's always confusing. Well, yeah, and, and I, I think this kind of plays into some of the questions around the um, the way that you know Ethereum is architected, and 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 I think really there's there's some things from Ethereum that Bitcoin can learn, and there's there's some things that from Ethereum that Bitcoin should learn not to do. And you know, one of those things is everything should not be done at the base layer because as soon as you do that, you know, you, you have the situation where um, anytime any, anything wants, anyone wants to do anything, it, um, it, it negatively affects everyone else wanting to do something on the network. And we should try to, and anytime we're building something, we should try to put as much things off chain as possible, you know, um, such as building, you know, financial contracts. So, yeah, no, that's, that's actually a question I have too. Like how much of Ethereum's fee pressure is due to actual demand for DeFi products, which is obviously somewhat considerable right now, versus the inefficiency inefficiency of the chain. Uh, it's probably a combination of the two, but which which one uh, has more more weight in that in that fee that fee calculation? I guess is a question I've had. I don't know if you can answer, but. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think I think part of it is that, um, you know, there is no uh, I mean, I guess I guess when you have whales that are able to, you know, move the market or do things on chain that price out your average retail investor or are able to spam the chain to do, you know, whatever their agenda is, um, it, like it doesn't it doesn't matter. I, I guess the inefficiency of the, of the underlying chain become apparent when whales are able to take advantage of it. Um, I think I, uh, that, that would be my two cents. Uh, yeah. You might say something else. Yeah. And that's another question I have, like how many people are actually using DeFi and how many, how many whales? Is it just whales? Like, yeah. Yeah. What, what are the, what are the real, real, real world uh, use cases other than yield farming? Yeah. <laughs> well, bringing this back to atomic swaps and uh, stable coins. I mean, it is, a fact a lot of a lot of the most popular stable coins are built on top of ethereum so i'm interested to see uh getting back to the roots of why you started atomic swap excuse me atomic loans uh how how are you envisioning a stable coin being used either on bitcoin or lightning and creating non-custodial product uh away from ethereum very interested to hear that yeah absolutely i, I think recently we've been we've been excited by what's been happening right now in the um, the RGB community. So for those that don't know, um, RGB is essentially a protocol that allows for 
you know, the, um, for assets, um, kind of, you know, simply uh, for assets to be issued um, on top of Lightning. Um, and so the idea is you're able to, uh, for example, um, I, I know that uh, Tether is planning to launch on RGB by end of year. Um, and they're essentially, you know, once you have uh, Bitcoin and Tether on Lightning, you know, things become a lot more, a lot more interesting. And so, you know, kind of where we're looking to head uh, kind of over the next, um, you know, few months to a year is to really be able to utilize the technology that's being developed by, you know, RGB and Lightning to be able to allow for more advanced um, financial contracts. And I think one thing to mention here is, um, you know, people might be thinking, okay, well, you know, you're going and you're launching Tether on Lightning. Uh, what are the negative connotations of this going to be for Bitcoin? How is this negatively going to affect Bitcoin? And I think one of the really interesting things is, um, as soon as you uh, as soon as you bring asset issuance into the question, people immediately think, oh, is this going to allow for any you know uh, any shitcoin to be created? Uh, is this going to be shitcoinery all over again, all over again with RGB? One of the nice things about it is that it's opt-in, which means that um, anybody can opt in to RGB, uh, you know, uh, today and, and use whatever token they want, and they don't have to hold the data for any token that they're not interested in or, you know, uh, doesn't align with them, for example. So I think that's one of the things that we're, we're kind of excited for um, moving forward. So sushi could be created on RGB, but it would not affect at least to a material level, the fees at the base protocol and price out potentially exactly, exactly. what people would describe as more useful use cases. Yeah, exactly. You, you would, I mean, you could have sushi created, but you know, only the DGENs who want to use sushi really need to have any, any involvement, uh, involvement with it or be verifying, you know, sushi transactions, for example. Can you explain sushi to me at all? It seems very, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> can I, can I explain all the all the all the food items? Uh, <laughs> we have we have sushi, we have yam. Um, you know what? It's it's interesting. Like sushi specifically, because you know they went and they just you know they took Uniswap, and they just copied it, and then they created a token with it. And then after that happened, Uniswap went back and said, "Oh crap!" Like you know, uh, sushi. They just came along and 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 you know basically stole our uh, you know uh, <laughs> stole stole our product and stole our liquidity. And that's the thing in Ethereum is like, you can't compete unless you have a, unless you have some type of yield farming. And so Uniswap was basically forced, you know, I think uh, shortly after Sushi was created, um, they, you know, Uniswap went and launched their Uni governance token. And, you know, you really don't need a governance token. Uniswap's been working for two years, uh, maybe even longer, um, and hasn't needed any type of governance token. Uh, but, you know, they felt pressure to do so because you know, their investors are saying, well, you know, Sushi is really capitalizing on this and, and we're not, you know, we need to go launch something to, you know, to make our returns on this product. And it's, it's just really unfortunate. Yeah. How does a, a governance token even function in this context either? Like, does it really have any, is it like uh, comparable to shareholder, shareholder voter rights? And is it even used as a governance token or is it just used as a way to attempt to, to, to make money via trading. Yeah. I mean, I think to be honest, like every, every project claims that, you know, these are non-speculative tokens uh, and these are specifically for the purpose of governance. But you know, in re the reality is, is that they're mostly used for speculative pur purposes and, and very rarely used for governance. And, and so I think that's, that's kind of the irony of, of all these tokens that are being created. Yeah. 
and just conceptually, like to flesh out the idea of a governance token, like it doesn't seem very socially scalable, especially if you have whales in the mix. Uh, you, you sort of defeat the whole idea of democratic governance in the context they would like it to play out in. But I guess then Vitalik and crew would come back to you with quadratic voting and somehow try to force that into the situation. But um, yeah, you know, I, and so, so just as a Bitcoiner and somebody personally who's focused on Bitcoin, write this newsletter, write the newsletter, run this podcast, working in the mining industry now, hyper-focused on Bitcoin. And there's always that lingering feel, like thought in my, the back of my head, like, am I the old boomer? Is this really a boomer coin? Am I... Am I missing out? Like, is this stuff really the wave of the future? And that, uh, what I've learned having followed this stuff for seven years now is that inevitably all that trash is, all that hype goes away. And Bitcoin is the mainstay that hasn't gone away. Uh, well, but it'll be I, think, I, I think we need to realize the, um, like the difference in philosophy, you know, the technology behind Bitcoin and Ethereum, like, you know, really, really isn't that different, but the philosophy of the two camps is, you know, on, 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 opposite sides, you know, is day and night. And so, um, what's interesting is I think in, in Ethereum, everything is about high time preference. You know, it's about, Hey, how can I make as much yield today as possible and, and take advantage of the situation? And Bitcoin is how can I build for the future? And how can I make sure that, you know, what we're building today is, is the infrastructure that's going to be in place in a hundred years. And I, I really think that's the difference in philosophy of the two camps. Yeah. I, I would agree there. And that is the, it's that yin and yang. I want to call it a yin and yang, but competing philosophies and both camps seem, if we're just taking a, an objective outsider perspective, think they have the right, um, right mindset in this. And it seems like you're coming to, uh, believe in the long term. let's build out infrastructure and so do you, how do you feel making this transition? Is it a big risk for you? Are you confident in it? it you, do, you, do you lose sleep at night thinking about this or? Um, to be honest, I think, I think we were losing more and more sleep uh, the longer we stayed in, in Ethereum and, um, and, and the longer we stayed, you know, building, um, you know, not our whole pro protocol. I mean, half our protocol was in Ethereum. The longer we stayed doing that, you know, we could just see, hey, you know, gas fees are increasing. Um, the need to create a governance token is increasing. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, there's all these, you know, amazing tools that are being built on Bitcoin, uh, you know, RGB, uh, DLCs with, um, you know, you had Ben, ben Carmen on and the Shirtbits guys in Crypto Garage are building great stuff. Um, we have Lightning that's making strides. You have all these things that are, are coming to light that are, that have been worked on for a long periods of times that, you know, they took their time to actually, you know, build the infrastructure properly that are coming to light. Meanwhile, the infrastructure that's ex that exists in Ethereum is is starting to go more and more downhill. And so for us, it was really like, you know, we were losing sleep, you know, staying in Ethereum. Really? It's going downhill? The uh, From observing on Twitter, it would seem that uh, many people close to the Ethereum project would say things are on the up and up right now. Uh, I, I, I guess it depends how you, how you, how you look at it. Um, I mean, do you, do you measure progress as, um, the amount of, um, you know, the, the amount, like, do you measure progress in terms of use cases or do you measure progress in terms of, uh, the amount of capital that's moved around, you know, between different projects? Um, you know, when you look at those two things, I think, 
it, it paints a much clearer picture of you know what are the what are the real use cases and what are the um, you know kind of you know uh, shitcoin Ponzi schemes that are being created that allows for people to make money quickly and and get out. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's turn this focus to Bitcoin and the future of Bitcoin and the the infrastructure you plan on building on. So RGB was launched earlier this year. Uh, it's pretty under the radar. I wrote a, a, a newsletter about it, I believe, like a month or two ago. It was like, hey, nobody's even talking about this. And I haven't really heard much since then. Like, So what's the development around that project looking like, particularly? Like, is it lively? Is there a lot of people dedicated to building that out? And then how does it even work from a technical aspect on top of Lightning? How does it interact with uh, the Lightning Network, HTLCs, I imagine, Uh and create this this ability to create tokens yeah so so rgb currently isn't uh isn't out in the wild just yet it, i think i think they're well th technically they have their um uh their on chain so their layer one implementation done but they're still working on integration with lightning and so the basic idea of how it's how it works is that you have these assets that are issued um, uh, that, are, that you know, all this data is off chain. So none of this is going on chain. We're not using off returns. The idea is it uses this concept called um, single use seals. And so the idea is basically that, um, you know, if I send a specific asset to you, um, you know, you can prove, prove basically that I sent that asset to you. And so the whole idea is that you have one issuer that comes, you know, say you have Tether, for example, that wants to issue some, you know, Tether on RGB, they go and they anchor it to a particular UTXO. So what's interesting here is it uses Bitcoin um, as a way to prove ownership, but not as a way to store data. Um, and so um, everyone in RGB basically just goes and they verifies, okay, uh, you know, I have I have so much USDT, so I have a thousand USDT, and it's anchored to this specific UTXO, um, or it can be anchored to this Lightning channel, and then I'm able to kind of use the same functions that exist in Lightning Network to be able to send transactions. Uh, over the network. So uh, some of the aspects of Lightning specifically still need to be worked out in the RGB protocol. For example, you know, uh, what does it mean to have a uh, Lightning channel that has Bitcoin versus a Lightning channel that has uh, Tether, for example? And then, you know, can I, if I have, if I have one that has um, uh, Bitcoin in it and there's another one that has Tether, can I route through it? Or, or doesn't it, you know, uh, or, you know, <laughs> or does an atomic swap occur? And, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother part of it. So that the routing part of it, there's still a lot more uh, development that needs to be done. But they're about, um, the latest I've heard is about a, a month and a half away from uh, kind of a preliminary lightning implementation that, you know, people will be able to start playing around with. So, uh, so that's definitely exciting. Yeah. Now, again, it's underscored too. Why aren't people talking about this? Just because it's not in the wild yet? Um How's the developer community that you're close with? Are, are people excited about it? Uh, again, there's very few people writing about it right now or talking about it. Yeah, I, I think I think people are definitely excited about it. Um, and there's been quite a few Bitcoiners that have kind of voiced, you know, support for what RGB is trying to do. I think I think part of it might be that uh, you know people kind of when they think of RGB, they think of colored coins, and you know they mm -hmm. think of colored coins not really having gone uh, anywhere. Um, and and I also uh, I also think that part of the reason is that there's um, not 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 enough necessary um, uh, kind of spotlight on what the use cases are for RGB. Um, you know, once you start combining it with various things. So, for example, if you take RGB and all of a sudden you have Tether on Lightning and you have Bitcoin on Lightning, well, now you can create a DEX between Bitcoin and Tether. And you know, as we all know, that's the most traded. Uh, you know, that's the uh, most used trading pair essentially. 
um, you know, you can take if once you have you know tether on on uh, RGB, you could take tether and you can use it in a DLC. So now you can create you know synthetic options on uh, on, on Lightning Network or uh, on on chain, um, and 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 you can basically use this within the uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem. So you know, I, I think I think people just haven't been focusing enough on kind of what are the use cases. Yeah. That's a very good point. I mean, Giacomo um, has been a, a very big proponent of it. I'm sure he's he's working on it, correct? Um, and that's fascinating, though. DLCs where you can use Tether, right? Because, I mean, that's a big risk to take, especially uh, with Bitcoin's price volatility that tends to trend upward. You could make a uh, million sat bet uh, that is uh, essentially $100, usd today that turns into a thousand dollars within a year and that could be stressful for people and yeah uh, some people could regret making those bets so being able to price those dlcs and dollars as we're in this transitionary period makes a lot of sense absolutely absolutely and and of course for us like the other use cases of course um is of course loans you know if you can get access to a loan and uh you know you can lock your bitcoin as collateral and then get access to you know rgb tether you know, then that's, you know, that's particularly useful for people who want to get access to liquidity. Um, but, uh, but kind of the first thing that we're actually, um, we're actually testing out is specifically, you know, just taking DLCs themselves right now, because that's the thing that's available right now that's in the wild and just really experiment or, or, or basically like creating a mini product with DLCs that allows for Bitcoiners to be able to go and, and test it out um, and, and, uh, and, and, and use it, you know, with their mainnet funds today. What's this product look like? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's basically a um, it's kind of a, a mini product for Bitcoiners to be able to bet, you know, on the on the price of Bitcoin, be able to bet on the election, um, and it's and it's a web app. So you can go. It's uh, it's called um, Atomic.Finance slash Odds, and basically the whole idea of it is that uh, you can go you can go on there, and if you're say uh, you know a crypto crypto Twitter influencer, or you see something on Twitter that you disagree with, you know, say you see someone on Twitter that's saying, hey, uh, I believe the price of Ethereum is going to be over five hundred dollars. By the end of the week, you can go and you can actually, uh, you know, you can say, "Hey, I disagree with you." You know, why don't you bet me on it? Um, you know, like allowing people to put their money where their mouth is finally, and and doing this with actual like, you know, uh, you know, DLCs, Bitcoin smart contracts. Yeah, DLCs, another underscore technology, man. I think they're gonna blow people out of the water. So, uh, I guess is a good opportunity for somebody who's been close to an Ethereum working with their smart contracts, how they're constructed and how, how much they cost specifically, like how do DLCs compare when you're talking about constructing a smart contract, uh, on top of Bitcoin instead of, uh, in the virtual machine, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's really two, um, two main things that like DLCs really bring to light. And, and number one is, uh, the privacy of the contracts created. So, you know, if you compare something to like, you know, if you take Ethereum, really everything is transparent, um, which means that, you know, any financial contract that you create on Ethereum, everybody knows about it. You know, if I'm sending data to someone, they know about it. Um, if I'm, you know, taking out a loan on compounds, everybody knows about it. But in this case with a DLC, you can create private contracts, which is really, really useful because it just looks like a regular old uh, two of two multisig. And the other thing as well is, um, is, is you, is you get uh, transparency of the, of the oracles. So um, of course, DLCs require uh, kind of a trusted third party to, to make them work that basically just, 
uh, you know, comes in and, and, and basically reports on a particular price, whether it's the Bitcoin price or, or the election, for example. Um, and it's really easy to get transparency on that, um, on that Oracle. But the other thing that's really huge about these Oracles compared to Ethereum is that the Oracles that exist in Ethereum are required to make an on-chain transaction to actually report on the price, which means that in times of high congestion, you know, you may be, you may end up in a situation where uh, the Oracle is not able to report on the price correctly and positions don't get, you know, liquidated, for example, which causes, causes insolvency, which we saw in, you know, in Black Thursday. So in, in, in DLCs, those Oracles, they're simply signing, they, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're creating signatures uh, and that's all off chain. And they, you know, there's, there's no, uh, there's no additional requirements other, other than that, which is really great. Yeah. And it's essentially free to, to send and broad or to sign and broadcast the signature, correct? Yeah, and, it, and it's super cheap for you know anyone to set up. So anyone who has you know if you're a, you're a company and you have you know quite a bit of reputation, um, you know, and you're able to go and set up an oracle and you know people trust you to do that. It's it's a really you know it's really really simple for them for them to do so, and and you know kind of make some extra you know cash on the side. Yeah, and then staying on this topic of the fact that the way smart contracts are constructed on Ethereum and everybody can see it, like how prominent is bot front running? Uh, do you think in the DeFi space, like being able to see what your uh, competitors or counterparts in an order book are doing before uh, their transactions are confirmed? Is there a lot of front running there? Yeah, we actually we actually heard about you know quite a few instances during uh, Black Thursday where there was um, if you take MakerDAO for example. Um, so the uh, so so first off, there's there's actual bots in Ethereum that anytime if you make any type of transaction. Um, and, uh, and, and the transaction that you create, um, you know, uh, they, what the bots will do is they'll run a quick simulation of like, does this transaction make money? And if that transaction makes money, then they'll just, you know, replicate the exact same transaction at a higher, um, I had a higher transaction fee and then, you know, <laughs> kind of take whatever arbitrage opportunity you had in the first place. Um, so that's one thing that like bots are doing constantly. And we, we've had this situation occur ourselves when we were, you know, testing out, you know, various things and, Hey, here's an arbitrage opportunity. Oh no, it was just taken by bot. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, uh, definitely a big concern. Um, and then the other one is with liquidations as well. So, um, you have a situation where miners, miners now are actually, you know, reordering various transactions, uh, in order to, uh, kind of give themselves an advantage. Um, in the process of liquid, liquidating positions. So if you take um, like MakerDAO DAI, for example, you know, miners are able to, um, you know, if a miner is also a liquidator, then they could just reorder their transaction to make sure that their, uh, their liquidation transaction goes through first. And, and we did see that on Black Thursday as well. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's getting crazy out there. <laughs> That's uh, insane to think of. And so do you, it's by steel man this devil's advocate transition is eth 2.0 would it would it solve any of these problems <laughs> yeah i think this is always a question and, and everyone thinks that you know ethereum 2.0 is the is the solution but uh, i mean r really what's happening with with ethereum 2.0 is um first of all you know when is it going to happen you know we should create a bet on that you know on this new uh, dlc product <laughs> but uh um i, I mean i'm not betting for it but uh, <laughs> um i personally don't think it's ever going to happen uh, yeah but... well well i think first off like there's a big kind of issue with ethereum 2.0 which is that it's a completely separate blockchain and then on top of that 
um, when you're dealing with Ethereum 2.0, like it solves, it's the, the purpose of it is to solve some scalability problems. And they do that by, you know, sharding the chain and having, you know, various shards in, you know, in different places doing different things. But the whole reason that Ethereum DeFi works is because of composability and because all of these, you know, decentralized apps can interact with each other. So what are you going to do? Have MakerDAO on one shard and have, you know, Compound on another one and, you know, they can't interact with each other. So uh, I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, how, what is DeFi going to look like when this happens? And even if, you know, Ethereum 2.0 is going to happen and, and whether the transition can even be successful. Yeah. I mean, it's a, the whole adage trying to do, not, I don't even know if it's an adage, it's a heuristic trying to do too much at once is, is going to lead to um, some trouble, which I think the trouble's already here. It's just whether or not who you, who you talk to. Uh, and so coming back to Bitcoin, like how is Bitcoin being a comparatively simple system benefit you at Atomic Loans and as, a, as somebody building on top of Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is like we get to sleep at night. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so, I mean, I've I've always said this about our contracts. Like, even when we had it cross chain, you know, we had we had our contracts that existed on Bitcoin, and we had our contracts that existed on Ethereum, and you know, those Bitcoin contracts were were solid. You know, I wasn't worried about you know any type of hacks occurring. The Ethereum contracts, on the other hand, there's just so much more surface area for things to go wrong i think and so one of the things i really like about kind of the bitcoin ecosystem is that um you know the way in which things are built um you know really reduces the surface area for attack and the things that can go long uh, can go wrong you know bitcoin script is very simple but it's also very um you know uh, it's very effective for building secure secure contracts and so I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, we've really liked kind of working in Bitcoin. Oh, and, and the other thing as well is actually being able to iterate. You know, um, if you think of the development cycles that exist in Ethereum, generally what happens is these projects, they take, you know, six months, eight months to a year to go and build up these contracts for every possible scenario that could happen. They go, they get it audited, um, they, you know, they pray, uh, pray that there's no bugs in it, and then they go and release it. And the problem with that is that, you know, if there are any bugs in it, well, either you put an admin contract in and you can upgrade it or you don't. And now you have a bug and now you have a honeypot. <laughs> um, and so in Bitcoin, you know, one thing we've, we've liked about DLCs is the ability to iterate. We can go and put something out there in the wild and we can make improvements to the software over time because, you know, all the contracts in Bitcoins are, are single use. You know, you use one contract, you use one two of two multi-sig for a DLC, and then, it, then, it's, then it's finished and it's done. And you can actually, you know, upgrade the software that you're building really nicely. Yeah. And that's because it's just single transactions, correct? Or um, the, the DLCs are in the transaction format, correct? Yeah, it's it's mostly because it's it's uh, Bitcoin uh, re revolves around like single use contracts. So like you can you can go and you you know uh, in, in Ethereum you go and you create a smart contract and then you know it exists there forever. Whereas in Bitcoin, you know you send your Bitcoin to a you know to a uh, you know P2SH for example, and you send it there and then you redeem from it, and that's all all you do is you send it and you redeem it, and you know that's really simple and it really reduces the surface area for attack. Yeah. There's beauty in Bitcoin simplicity, freaks. I keep saying it. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, how long do you think it takes for this 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 
sort of space on top of Bitcoin to mature. You guys are, it seems like early first movers taking a risk, right? Like RGB isn't here yet. DLCs are uh, pretty new and the first implementation or the first DLC live on mainnet happened only a couple weeks ago. Uh, so what, what do you, if let's just assume that uh, all the kinks are fleshed out and you have the ability to build what you want to build, what's, what's on your roadmap, what, what types of products and um, financial offerings are you going to give uh, users of atomic loans on top of Bitcoin in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I think one of the things that, um, you know, in, in general right now, like things are very early. Um, you know, we, yeah, I mean, you know, Shared Bits has been doing God's work and Crypto Garage as well and, and kind of building up DLC to where they are now. You know, the RGB team has been doing this, you know, the same thing, uh, but it's slow moving and it's slow moving to figure out, you know, how are all these pieces going to fit together? Um, I think the reality is um, it's going to, it's going to take a bit, it's going to take a long, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time to get to, um, you know, kind of advanced financial contracts that are non-custodial on Bitcoin. Uh, but I think it's going to take less time than people think. So if you take um, if you take R RGB for example, I mean we're going to have Tether, you know, on Lightning by end of year. I mean that's you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, uh, and so and so you know once you have that, if you have that by end of year, then you know I mean you could see a Dex by uh, you know March of next year. Someone creating a Dex on top of you know uh, you know with Bitcoin and Tether for example on top of Lightning. Um, uh, DLCs are, you know, there's already DLCs happening right now with the election. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're about to um, kind of, you know, beta, beta test and put out our mini product for uh, being able to bet on various things, um, you know, in the next, next couple of weeks now. Um, and, and people would be able to do that on mainnet. Um, and so, and so I think, um, I think simple things like that, we're going to see like, you know, pretty soon, I think in order to get to more advanced um, financial contracts, like if we're talking about standard options, if we're talking about margin trading, um, you know, those types of things, I think will take a little bit longer because we need to do a little bit more work on, uh, on the things that are important for those types of contracts. So for example, you know, if I'm entering into like a, a margin position or a, you know, a standard option, I need to be able to have transferability of that. And I need to be able to have, you know, some type of, of, of order book where I'm able to, you know, buy and sell it. And that's that's essential for any any type of those those contracts to exist, um, and it's going to take a little bit longer to get there and to and to get the you know libraries built and to get the interactions built in order to to get to that place. Um, but that's kind of where we're thinking is you know we you know DLCs will will enable you know betting in the first place, then they'll enable standard options, and then after that you know we'll be looking into building more advanced you know type of contracts, whether it's um, you know simple margin or margin trading. Um, or even, you know, loans, uh, maybe, maybe several months to, to a year down the line. Yeah. So I can hear the Bitcoiners screaming in the background. Why do we need DeFi? Why, why do we need it? Like who are the target customers outside of degenerate gamblers or traders, if you will? Yeah, I think, well, I, I think part of it is, is, is a question of, I mean, here, I, I mean, I, I, I'll ask you a question, Marty. Like, what, what do you think of the, um, what do you think of the financial tools that exist? Like, for Bitcoin right now, I think they're pretty rudimentary. Um, the pretty high interest rates too, um, but yeah, I think uh, and the custodial aspect of it for some of them, I do. I do prefer 
if I am going to engage in some of these financial products that force me to send my Bitcoin to another address that I don't have complete control of, I'd rather have a multi-sig setup where I can make sure that it's not being rehypothecated uh, and that they actually have the Bitcoin in the contract at the end of the day, I guess. That would be uh, my feelings on it, too. I'm a, I'm a humble stats, sat stacker where I just stack sats and, and throw them in cold storage when once they hit a, a certain threshold and, and rest on my laurels. Really, Marty? I thought you were a 100x leverage trader, you know? You know? <laughs> uh, not, um, I tried it before. It's uh, got my dick pushed in. It's not worth it. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a lot of people. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think that, I think, I, you know what, to be honest, in the kind of the centralized finance space for, for Bitcoin, I think there are some tools that exist that have done a really good job of being transparent um, and honest with their customers. I think like Unchained is a really good example of that. Um, but there's other ones that are doing, you know, rehypothecation left and right. And the reality is that, um, you know, what, what kind of future do we want for financial tools for Bitcoin? Do we want all the financial tools that exist for Bitcoin to exist within kind of what I call, you know, crypto banks where, um, you know, whether that's a centralized exchange or whether that's, you know, some other tool that, um, that requires me to give up, you know, custody of my Bitcoin and, uh, you know, they have full control of it and then I do whatever I want and, and they're essentially the gatekeeper for me getting my Bitcoin back. Or do we want financial tools for Bitcoin that retain as many properties, um, uh, that re retain as many properties as Bitcoin as possible? So, you know, like, you know, Bitcoin is really great because it's verifiable, it's scarce, you know, seizure resistant, auditable. And, and you know, why can't we have a lot of those properties for our financial tools as well? And so, um, you know, if we're able to, to build up um, the ability to create, you know, whether it's, whether it's betting products and in a non-custodial manner or whether it's, you know, margin trading in a non-custodial manner, and I, I'm just, you know, reducing the risk of, of the financial contracts that I'm creating, um, you know, in, in our minds, like that's, that's a great thing because it makes sure that I'm always able to exit, you know, whatever that position is and that I, I'm not locked into whatever you know, wherever place or whatever crypto bank I'm depositing my Bitcoin into. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, a, a Bitcoin is different than a Bitcoin IOU. That's a very good point. Ah, it's crazy. Are we going to get the decentralized future? <laughs> is it, and so what are the, so I get to, again, steel man this, what are the trade-offs then in engaging in uh, set up with atomic loans as opposed to something like an Unchained, like... I guess some would argue that you have some uh, amount of recourse if something goes wrong with a custodian that you know if these contracts are set up where you really can't control and don't know your counterparty at the end of the day. There's less recourse if something goes, uh, this shit hits the fan. I guess that would be the pushback there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I think the questions there are really like, what are the things that are, you know, how, how is the shit going to hit the fan? And, and the thing is in Ethereum, the way that shit hits the fan is there's a, a smart contract bug, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and there's some, something wrong with the, you know, the, the contracts that are being created. Whereas the question in Bitcoin where, you know, shit hits the fan is more, you know, I have a DLC and uh, my Oracle didn't sign. Okay. Well, <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're at the end of the day, you're trusting a, you're, like even if you use Unchained, like you, you're trusting a central party. If you're using a DLC, you're trusting a, a central party with an Oracle signature. Um, you know, uh, and 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 the deals. You know, it's just it's a different level of of, of trust. Essentially, is kind of the the end solution. And so, um, 
Uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's the main, the main difference is like, uh, you, you're always going to have to trust something with any, any type of these financial contracts, because you need to get access to the price data. Um, but it's like, how, how much of that do I need to, do I need to trust and, and what elements do I need to trust and what are, what are the things that can, can go wrong? And I think generally if, if it's being built on Bitcoin and if these financial contracts are being built on Bitcoin, um, and they're built, you know, built properly, which most things on Bitcoin tend to be, then, you know, there's a lot less things that, that, that can potentially go wrong. Yeah. There's that sliding scale trade-offs. It's fascinating. Do you feel like you're onto something that most people, I mean, this has sort of been a theme of, of my questioning here is like, how come people aren't paying attention to this? How come people aren't paying attention to this? Like how early are we and how robust of a marketplace do you see what you're working on becoming in 10, 20 years? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because, I mean, I think we're in, I don't know, 1985 of the internet. I don't know. <laughs> in terms of financial contracts, at least for Bitcoin. Um, you know, it, you know what's interesting is like lightning, what's lightning good for? Lightning's good for payments. It's good for games, but there's no financial contracts for it, right? Like there's no, there's no kind of more advanced uh, like feature set that we can do with it. And so I what about think- it? What about LM markets? Do you like that? Oh, Ellen Marcus is awesome. Uh, but of course, like, and I think, I think, uh, you know, they have the intention to go non-custodial, but of course, like Ellen Marcus today is, is, is custodial. And I, I love what they've been building, what they've been trying to push forward. Um, but I think they'll always run into, you know, um, I guess like uh, it being custodial, they'll run into regulatory problems. So if they can make that non-custodial, you know, um, uh, not with DLC specifically, because DLCs are good for options specifically, but a, a different type of uh, Bitcoin contract, then I think uh, something like that is going to be phenomenal. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we're very, very, very early on in, in the stack. And uh, and we don't even have, we don't even have a, you know, a DEX for, for Bitcoin yet between Bitcoin and Tether. I mean, that's how early we are. <laughs> yeah, I just popped in my head earlier. I forgot to say it, so I'm happy you said that. We're, so this stuff is basically counterparty done the right way, right? Because Bitcoin did have a DEX and counterparty at some point with the color coins on top of it, but proved. Was that using op return? It was using some op code, wasn't it? Oh, it was, I can't remember if it was using op return or, yeah, it might've been using op return. And it was also, I remember they, um, uh, was it Luke Dash Jr.? He uh, like changed, changed kind of the structure of Bitcoin to make sure that counterparty wouldn't work. And then. Uh, yeah, it was actually uh, pretty I, fucked up, Luke. <laughs> oh man but but i mean like if if it's that i mean also if counterparty was that fragile then you know it you know it probably wasn't uh wasn't here to stay but uh but in general i think um you know the tools that are being built like say like rgb for example that doesn't rely on you know any kind of the you know the network aspects or a, a bitcoin node to be able to function properly um i think once we have things that, like that that are more more resilient then uh you know then it, then it will become very very interesting no, I agree. I agree. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, 22. <laughs> Holy shit, dude! <laughs> You're fucking badass, man. Again, because you mentioned uh, you mentioned regulators earlier, like so building these products that could potentially defang regulators at some point in the future. Uh, you feel like you're living on the edge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we might need to. Uh... Uh, I mean, we, we, uh, you know, <laughs> we always try to build things that are, that are, you know, compliant at the end of the day. Yeah, I know we live in Canada, so, you know, the SEC is, uh, just south of the border. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if something like what happened in 1933 occurs again, you know, we're going <laughs> to have to skip town. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <I> mean, <laughs> yeah.
it's uh it's uh it's hectic i don't know we we always think that i mean at the end of the day i think i think a lot of bitcoiners agree that um you know we're on the pathway towards the separation of of um state and money and uh uh and so i think like you know eventually you know there's only one way to get there and it's to make sure that whatever we build can't be can't be easily stopped so yeah so how'd you seeing the product that you've built in atomic loans is very impressive in the ideas in your head. Like how did you develop this, uh, engineering prowess, I guess at such a young age, like what were you working on before you even found Bitcoin? Have you been building stuff since you were younger or? Yeah, I remember. Um, I mean, I was building stuff since I was, uh, you know, I remember when I was like nine or 10, just, you know, right clicking on a website, being like inspect element and being like, holy crap, how does this work? <laughs> but uh, uh, I had a phase kind of in um, uh, elementary school, high school, where I was, you know, building building a ton of flash games. And at the time I was like, flash is the future, you know? <laughs> and of course, uh, uh, of course, Steve Jobs killed that for me, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, that was that was fun back in the day. So I, 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 had, a, I had a lot of fun kind of building, building games, uh, you know, back then. And and I guess that that translated. And then, I, of course, like my dad, uh, kind of how I got interested in Bitcoin is my dad's always been talking about um, kind of, you know, trusting the government and kind of what, what do you need to be worried about? Or like, what happens if, you know, what happens if there's a, you know, there's a nuclear, uh, you know, strike on Canada and you need to escape, you know, uh, you know, where are you going to go? You know, <laughs> so so I've always been kind of, um, you know, kind of thinking about those things. So it just happened that those, you know, kind of this, you know, love of, of programming and um, and and you know, what if, what if shit hits the fan? You know, I guess those two things come, coming together made me really interested in Bitcoin. Uh, some would argue, I believe Francis Poulet, uh, that shit is currently hitting the fan in Canada. Uh, what, uh, I imagine your dad's been angry, uh, this year. <laughs> he's been, he's been, uh, he's been escaping to, uh, to the, uh, to the, to the cottage with no Wi-Fi or anything. So I think he's, uh, he's living a peaceful life while everyone else is, uh, is losing it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been crazy and, you know, it's been crazy the amount of, um, you know, and, and uh, the amount of rights that have been kind of, um, kind of taken away, I suppose, in a way, uh, and the, and the way that people aren't, aren't fighting back against it. I think Canada has been, you know, as a country that is very, um, you know, they like to like to follow follow the rules a little bit more than than down south where you guys are, <laughs> and so people don't tend to be uh, you know don't tend to fight back as much. So I think that's that's unfortunate, and and we're starting to see that with uh, kind of what's happening in in Canada. Which is so weird because there's so many incredible Bitcoiners in Canada building some of my favorite products that exist on the market. It's like whoa, it's like it's breeding uh, some of the best most actionable anarcho-capitalist I've I've come across to date yet. Uh, you're sort of beholden to this extremely incompetent government and Justin Trudeau. That dude is such an idiot. Uh, and the logical inconsistencies with all the lockdown stuff that's been going on is... Uh, it's infuriating here. I can't imagine how infuriating it is north of the border. Yeah, well, um, no kidding. Well, it's it's gotten pretty bad. I, I mean, it's interesting for these Bitcoiners because... Um, you know, a lot of people, I, I, you know, you see on Twitter all, all the time, these, these Bitcoins like Francis, like, why don't you move to the, why don't you move to the U S already? <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, maybe that would make sense, but it's been crazy. Like in, you know, in Quebec, uh, you know, the police being able to get, you know, subpoenas for, uh, you know, going into people's houses for not, 
um, for you know for neighbors snitching on them for having more than the capacity than that that is you know allowed for COVID. You know, you know, just 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 crazy things that are occurring. Yeah, make sure you're wearing a mask when you have sex. It's uh, it's important. Ah, ah. It's going to make the, oh, wait, all in, the in difference. The, in the UK, you're not allowed to have sex, are you? <laughs> you don't live together. <laughs> no, no. I believe at one point, I forget who it was, which country, but uh, there was recommendations of only having sex through a, through a glory hole. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, that's a, the safest option, you know? <laughs> that's the wholesome option. <laughs> the wholesome, pun intended. Yeah. Uh, no, to bring it back to a serious note, you're 22. I'm 29. I'm not that much older. I'm seven years older. There's enough distance where it's like, all right, what what are these young kids thinking? It is? So do you find yourself as a 22 year old focusing on Bitcoin and uh, liberty in the digital age? Are you you're an outlier in your age group? Would you say, or uh, do, do you feel are the are the youths of the world beginning to rise up behind the scenes and, and really think about this stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of my my social circle, like specifically, you know, comes from uh, comes from you know, University of Waterloo. And I think, you know, you, you know, Waterloo is, of course, where where Vitalik went. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, I think there's a lot of um, kind of like, you know, more Ethereum presence there. And, and there's a lot more, uh, I guess, shit cornery and like in Toronto as well. Um, so, you know, the people that we interact with, you know, they, they're much more idea, you know, kind of focused on the idea of, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin, not Bitcoin, not blockchain, which is, which is unfortunate. But to be honest, like, you know, if you, if you talk to your average uh, kind of person, I guess, who's 22, you know, they've, they've of course heard of Bitcoin, but I, I really don't think they're, they're aware of the ramifications of why Bitcoin is important or what, what does, what does the concept of printing money mean, you know, like during COVID, you know, people have been getting, you know, stipends here in Canada, um, I think it's every two weeks. I, I have to double check. Um, but you know, you know, when you ask them, like, where does that money come from? Where do you think that money comes from? Their answer is, oh, oh, I don't know. They have, you know, they have that in reserve somewhere. It's like, well, no, they're they're printing that. <laughs> so uh, I think there's definitely some more uh, waking up to do. And I think I think the other thing is that your average Bitcoiner is is really um, you know a little bit older than myself because you know they got in when uh, you know I mean Bitcoin was released when I was. Uh, you know, I was, you know, 10 years old, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, so, it's, crazy. so, so it's a, yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty wild. So I, I, I wish I was playing games back in the day and you know, I don't know, playing RuneScape and getting Bitcoin, but, uh, fortunately I wasn't, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I was 17 drunk at a Phillies parade when Satoshi dropped the, uh, the white paper. I was nowhere near thinking about Bitcoin, but I'm, uh, finicking around with my computer right now. Cause I actually, coincidentally uh, interviewed Matthew Mazinkshus from the Crypto Voices podcast, and they do a quarterly update on the world's base monies in Canada uh, trailing 12 months. So this, this chart, I pulled up a chart in the last 12 months uh, when this report was dropped, which was a month ago. So this data is a little stale, but pretty fresh, actually, only a month old. Uh, Canada had expanded its base money by 431%, second in the world only to Norway, which had done 851% expansion. It's crazy how much money Canada has printed, considering how small your country is as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, and the other thing I think people that um, you know, people don't realize, and I, I, you know, I looked at this number a long time ago, so it might be very, you know, might be might be incorrect. But you know, the the, the actual backing of the actual money that's backing 
um, you know, capital that exists in Canada today. You know, banks are 0.2% backed. You know, so if you put a hundred bucks in the bank, but you know, they have 20 cents, you know, <laughs> you know, at least in the US, it's it's a minimum of 10% uh, backing. And 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 so it's uh, you know, we're I mean, we're, we're, we're ready for a, for a 2008 here in my opinion. Not anymore. That changed in March. The, uh, the backing requirements were, we're catching up with you, but Canada sold all your gold. You get over like the last, over the Trudeau, um, uh, his stint as the prime minister he sold all the gold. There's none left. That's, uh, that's what happens when you don't, uh, believe in sound money. <laughs> right. That's why talking to Steve Barber, uh, he tweeted out today, hinted that the Canadian city, I was, I'm just assuming it's a Canadian city. could, it could be wrong, uh, is mining Bitcoin. There's, I mean, with the amount of abundant energy that you have, uh, uh, in Canada, Alberta specifically, and even in Quebec with the hydro electricity like there is an opportunity to, to change the tides via bitcoin um but it's going to be a hard sell and a long process and canada is lucky to have entrepreneurs like you who are forward thinking and 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 working on these problems because yeah the world's so fucked right now man it's not only canada it's everywhere even here in the united states it's pretty bad yeah no kidding well we're, we're lucky to uh i mean for the for bitcoin specifically we're lucky to have you know uh, cold weather half 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 of the year, so you know that keeps the miners running. <laughs> <laughs> right, keeps them cool. Absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else we can we can latch onto here. We've done enough Ethereum hating in this podcast, but I can I can always do more. Uh, how how does the developer community view the DeFi pumpers? Uh, you have to. Yet I have to assume there is. Uh, developer builder community that's altruistic and really wants to build products that that help the world but it seems like it's being co-opted by degenerates yeah i mean i i definitely know you know what's interesting is i know a lot of um you know we've heard from a lot of like ethereum ethereum maximalists that are hating what's going on in kind of degen DeFi right now which is hilarious <laughs> um uh you know like just being really um really dismayed by kind of what's what's going on in the ecosystem right now um and even you know i know i have a few folks like kind of in the ethereum space that are like you know tweeting about things like you don't need a token to create a project you know and and i think that's it's really interesting to hear kind of like the two sides because there seems to be this disconnect between um, you know, the, the DGENs that are going and, you know, building a project in a week and launching a token and like these developers that have been around and you're trying to build like legitimate projects for a longer period of time. And it's, it's, it's just crazy to see the, see the disconnect. Yeah. No, and it's interesting with atomic loans and your product specifically. I mean, you've probably seen it up front and personal, like how, like what's the ratio of Bitcoin uses collateral to ether? as a token like and, and have you seen up up front like what people choose as collateral and trust as collateral and does that give you any insights into what is a, a better digital money if you will yeah i mean i think we've seen a lot more uh interest in in using bitcoin as collateral like especially on ethereum like MakerDAO, for example i remember you know, they were, um, you know, I mean, of course it's wrapped Bitcoin. So, I mean, I imagine a lot of people are a lot more wary of putting, you know, wrapped Bitcoin into Ethereum, but regardless of that, you know, there's $85 million of, um, of Bitcoin uh, on, uh, you know, on Ethereum in MakerDAO. 
Um, another one of the protocols, you know, Ave, they have, uh, I'm just checking here, actually. Uh, I imagine they have, you know, uh, I don't think they have quite as much, but I, but I imagine they're getting up there in terms of the amount of like Bitcoin that's actually locked, um, you know, on, on their system. Uh, yeah, they have like 124 million. Um, and so, you know, clearly there's a demand for people being able to use, um, you know, being able to use Bitcoin, you know, as collateral, because it, at the end of the day, it is the best, you know, collateral type. Like what is, what is better as a collateral type than are you ever going to be able to use it than Bitcoin? And so, um, and so it's interesting that people are willing to, you know, they're willing to take a Bitcoin IOU to be able to have exposure to this scarce asset. So um, I think that's, that's definitely, um, it's definitely exciting for Bitcoin. Um, that's another thing I've wondered too, all this rap Bitcoin and these claims on Bitcoin that are used in these smart contracts that are susceptible to bugs from time to time, uh, as we've seen. Like, so at the end of the day, if that smart contract is bunk, it gets locked, like the simplicity contracted, and you just can't access the funds, you still have the Bitcoin at BitGo. And so to me, it's like, uh, it's a weird. Like, even if you play the game, you can take gains from that smart contract that's using that IU for a time until it gets locked up, but then you get your collateral back at the end of the day. And I'm just, I, I can't fully flesh out my intuition that there's some fuckery going on there. Like, it seems like you're able to get all the upside and none of the downside with that, which some people would be like, oh, it's a benefit, but it's like, it's a, a, a it's fuckery in my mind. Well, well yeah, it's not like, it's not immutable. I mean, you know, you, it's basically like using your Bitcoin on an exchange and, oh, okay. Like, you know, Ethereum is essentially the exchange and, oh no, you know, uh, uh, you know, the exchange had a bug. And so that's fine because they still have your Bitcoin in cold storage. So they'll just give your Bitcoin back to you. And so it doesn't matter what type of, you know, contracts you create, you know, on Ethereum because Bitcoin is always holding there, you know, sitting there with your Bitcoin at the end of the day. Um, so, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a weird situation because it's, it's really, you know, people talk about um, Ethereum as a layer two uh, for Bitcoin, but I mean, you know, Ethereum is as much of a layer two for Bitcoin as Coinbase is a layer two for Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I can send to my, I can send to my, my grandma uh, on Coinbase and, oh, it's, it's no fees. You know, I don't have to have to pay any fees on Coinbase to send uh, Bitcoin to my grandma, you know? <laughs> right. So it's uh. No, it's very interesting. And I, th I think the other thing as well that people don't realize is that like, um, what's interesting is like Bitcoin IOUs actually uh, compete with Bitcoin itself. Um, because like, if you think of like a Bitcoin that exists on, on Ethereum or a Bitcoin that exists on like Coinbase, for example, um, you know, there's different properties that exist for that Bitcoin. You know, all of a sudden you have Bitcoin that doesn't, you know, doesn't have any transaction fees. Um, it's not censorship resistant. It's not auditable. You know, it's not verifiable. But, you know, you don't have to pay any fees versus Bitcoin that exists on the base layer is, you know, verifiable, auditable, you know, scarce, um, but like you're paying transaction fees for it. So I, I think it's very interesting how both of those actually, you know, directly compete with each other. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, right. As a miner, it's like you don't want those fees taken away from you uh, via an IOU. There's, there's some weird game theory dynamics at play. You can't deny it's uh that's the other thing like all this stuff can go on until one day it doesn't like we found out with the dow hacker like and again like the the 
plan to transition to ETH 2.0? Do you literally pause everything that's going on, transition, then restart? Like, is that how they're... Does, am I correct in assuming that's how it's going to work? Or is, is there going to be some transitionary compatibility? Well, I, I always wonder, but like, what is the what is the developer overhead going to look like, you know, and, and, um, and, and, you know, there's, there's something that's very interesting going on right now. So, you know, even if, you know, if Ethereum 2.0 launches and everyone's kind of, you know, uh, utilizing it and, you know, what happens is MakerDAO go and they have a version that's on Ethereum 1.0 and on 2.0 is compound do the same thing. Like, you know, do all these contracts that have been working together on Ethereum 1.0, do they all go and, you know, relaunch the same thing and that exists on, on Ethereum 2.0. Um, and, and and what does that transition actually look like? Because it's a completely separate blockchain. It's like all these projects needing to, you know, just uh, you know pack their bags and you know, uh, oh, we've got a new we've got a new spot for you, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, and and what's interesting actually is that there's we've heard of a lot of projects in Ethereum DeFi that are now planning to move to other blockchains. Um, uh, for example, like Solana, which is this other layer one. Uh, that probably has, uh, apparently has a bunch of new improvements over Ethereum, for example, a bunch of DeFi projects have, have been talking about moving over to Solana because, uh, you know, Ethereum 1.0 is just not working for them anymore. But, you know, I think the question for us was always, okay, what, when does it stop? You know, Ethereum, you know, uh, oh, Ethereum was great because you, everything should cost five cents. And then, and you do everything at the base layer, which means that it's not going to be like that forever. And then as soon as it's not, Okay, well, you just jump ship to Polkadot or Solana or Cosmos, and then you go build your DeFi project there. Well, then what happens when you know everything's being done at the base layer on those chains, and then uh, those one those ones become congested? Uh, oh, are you just going to move to the next one? And like you know, where where does it end? There's no loyalty. <laughs> There's no loyalty. There's no ability to plan for the long term, which exactly. circles back to what we got got into earlier. And so again, to keep steel manning, steel manning a lot here. So how how would potential upgrades to Bitcoin, like Schnorr Signatures, Taproot, uh, affect the products you're building? Would you have to do any of this re-architecting um, if they're in- implemented? Yeah, so there's some there's some improvements specifically that um, you know uh, Taproot brings uh, that that enables a lot of kind of interesting stuff for us. One of those is actually um, uh, transferability of like DLCs over Lightning, for example. Um, so that's really exciting because then, you know, imagine, you know, imagine you and me were able to enter into an options contract and then, uh, you know, and then we're able to trade it, you know, to, to a third party, you know, whenever we want and we're able to route that over the lightning network. Um, there's some exciting things like that that are definitely coming to, to light. I'm also really excited about kind of what Jeremy Rubin's been working on with CTV. Um, hey, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden, you know, CTV is implemented in one Bitcoin transaction, you can open a thousand lightning channels. You know, <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and then the last one I think is probably um, you know Sikash uh, no input or now known as Sikash uh, any prev output. Like being able to do finally have L two for Lightning. I mean, uh, I I think that specifically, and and this isn't something I've talked about yet, um, but you know that being able to work really effectively with kind of what's happening with the development that's happening with state chains. And for those that don't know, state chains are basically um, you know, kind of a, a side, side chain for Bitcoin that has, uh, that is censorship resistant. Um, you know, the ability for, you know, state chains to actually, you know, be able to do, be, be created in a manner that doesn't have ridiculously long timeouts or long timeouts for lightning in general. I mean, that's, that's just going to accelerate, you know, adoption of lightning like crazy. Yeah, let's get a refresher on state chain. State chain is basically 
doing transactions where you transact and private keys, correct? You just move them forward or to, to a next user? Yeah, exactly. The idea is basically, um, you know, every user, they, they're basically locking their, um, uh, their funds into a, it's kind of like a two of two multi-sig essentially. And one key is held by the, the, fed, uh, the, the, fed, fed, the state chain entity. And the other one is held by, you know, the users. And it's, it's essentially a process of, it's like you're transferring the private key from like one party to the next, but you're not actually, um, uh, so no party, re you know, reveals the, private key that was before them. But the basic thing that it enables is it allows you to lock into this kind of side chain and allows you to exit at any time. So if say the state chain entity goes offline, you know, I can still get my money back. And, uh, and the other thing is in a capital efficient manner, I can send money like that exists within the state chain. I can send Bitcoin to anyone I want, um, you know, without you know, without them needing inbound liquidity and like lightning, which, you know, is the common thing for problems in, in the layer two. Um, but what this enables that's really interesting is it enables DLCs to be done in a manner where you can have, you know, instant transferability of DLCs without any capital efficiency requirements. So say, you know, uh, me and you, Marty, say we go and we enter into a DLC and we want to transfer, uh, I'll use Ben Carmen because he was just on the podcast, but say we want to transfer to Ben. Um, you know, we'd be able to transfer that DLC without him needing to go and set up a lightning node and have, you know, channel liquidity in there, et cetera, et cetera. We can just do it, um, you know, by, by, you know, those private keys basically being moved. Yeah. It's fascinating. Shout out to, uh, Ruben Thompson for, for putting that idea forward. Um, yeah, it's crazy, man. And it's like, that's a, so I guess. I'm trying to phrase this right before I get yelled at. Um, <laughs> there's part of me that wants to to move fast and implement all these things. Uh, are you okay with the pace of development on these particular upgrades right now? Or is, is there any points of frustration where you're like, hey, this stuff seems ready. We could, we could probably implement it uh, pretty safely without without too many headaches. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I've been, um, I haven't had a, like a ton of um, kind of involvement with the, um, you know, looking into kind of these these features and those getting implemented into Bitcoin, other than being involved kind of in, um, I guess, a little bit in in kind of the discussion uh, for Taproot. But I, I, from what I've seen from like, you know, the, the telegrams that have been, telegram groups that have been created for, for Taproot is that, you know, there's just a lot of um, kind of back and forth and, um, you know, no one's really willing to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, put their, put their foot down and say like, you know, this is how it should happen because as soon as they do that, they're considered, you know, they're considered a Roger Ver, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> uh, and so, and so I think there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of scar tissue, I think from SegWit um, and, and people are scared. And, and I think that uh, like, that's not great. I also understand why that's the case. And, um, uh, and, and why, why people, you know, don't want to necessarily push things, uh, push people too far, or, um, they want to make sure that, you know, everything is built properly in Bitcoin. Um, but I think at the same time, if we don't, if we don't come together and figure out a way to allow for these, some of these changes that are, you know, very rudimentary, um, and, and, and don't have that much of a, you know, intense feature set, uh, that are going to negatively affect Bitcoin. If we don't get some of these things moving along, then, um, you know, we're going to be at a standstill. And the, the reality is that we're going to have a, a future where uh, financial tools for Bitcoins are going to exist within crypto banks, you know, and, and we just have to, you know, realize that um, 
if we don't um, if we don't push the needle forward, obviously don't do it too fast. You know, we don't we're not here to you know move fast and break things. We're here to build for the long term. Um, uh, but but if we don't make sure that some of these things get through, then uh, then that could be the reality that we're facing. Um, I don't know. That's my two cents. Obviously, no. other Bitcoiners probably have a lot different opinion. But <laughs> yeah, no, that sort of echoes what. Craig Maxwell wrote in a Reddit post or a Reddit comment, I believe a little bit over a month ago, like, Hey, it's like, if you stagnate too much, people are going to stop, uh, reviewing and then stop building wallets and libraries and other things that, that support these, these up upgrades. And mm -hmm. there is a window of opportunity that needs to be seized upon, especially if you consider, how hectic things get during bull runs. Uh, it's free freaks have never experienced a bull run. Uh, it's pretty distracting. Can't think about anything about the price or talk about anything about the price. And uh, developers have even come out and say, yeah, it's even hard to like write code and review code during that these bull runs. Um, I, I can I can definitely relate. <laughs> <laughs> arguably, arguably when it's most important too, when the stakes are raised considerably due to the amount of money being preserved by the network. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I think one one important question here is 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 with all these changes that exist in Bitcoin, you know, what what do we want the future of Bitcoin to look like? Do we want it to be? Do we want Bitcoin to end up like gold, where it's you know it's you know it's sitting in vaults, you know, in various you know financial institutions, and it never moves from there, and your average person might have some gold, but they don't really do much with it, or do we want Bitcoin to be? Uh, you know, programmable money and be able to be used for various things. And I think it's, you know, it's really just up to us, the community to, de to decide, like, you know, what do we want the future of Bitcoin to look like? Yeah. Me personally, I just want the optionality. I want the, the option to be able to do either. And um, it seems like uh, we need to build out more of that optionality on the non-custodial programmable money side, which you're working on. Thank you for working on that. It's, uh, it's important. And that's, Many people will be like, hey, I don't need this. I don't want this. Why are we building this on Bitcoin? But again, if it doesn't uh, erode any of the assurances that make Bitcoin Bitcoin and provides more optionality for Bitcoiners to uh, explore or leverage Bitcoin, then I have no problem with it. Again, I'm a, I'm a humble stats, sat stacker, but I have no problem with optionality. I, I completely agree. And, and I think at the end of the day, as long as, as long as what's being built doesn't negatively affect the base layer, that um, doesn't negatively affect you know everyone else who's subscribed to what exists in Bitcoin and what exists there today. Um, I, I I mean I think that's a you know it's a good thing. As soon as soon as you start getting into things like um, you know we're gonna you know massively change how Bitcoin works and you know add new opcodes that enable all these fancy things to be to be done at the base layer. Um, you know then then I think there's another question to be had, which is uh, you know is this going to um, negatively affect what people are doing today. But if, if these things are being built mostly off chain, I mean, I, I, I don't see why it would be a, a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, as a miner, I've got a, I've got a theory that you can apply Jevons paradox to UTXOs. Uh, I think it would actually be helpful for a fee market too, like creating that utility on top where it doesn't touch the chain very often, but you do have to initiate transactions to to get into that um that will create a, a robust fee market that um 
and driven by the fact that UTXO has become more useful. The, the, the utility provided by UTXO increases significantly by the, the products and optionality that UTXOs can interact with. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not familiar with that paradox, but, uh, but I, I would definitely agree. And I think that, um, I think that being able to, you know, at the end of the day, like Bitcoin should be used for, for settlement and, and we should be building layers on top, which are starting to be built. We have layer two, which is lightning. We have layer three that's being built with RGB. And you know, these are exciting because these things, these things work together and, and we don't need to do everything at the, at the, at the base layer. Yeah. So Jevons paradox states, uh, it's a paradox because uh, it's commonly applied to oil specifically. Uh, the paradox is that as you become more efficient with a good, so in my theory, a UTXO, I'm, I'm considering that the good, the fuel in this economy, uh, you would assume that the more efficient you are, you'd use less of it. You can, you can stretch that, uh, that gas molecule or a UTXO further but what actually plays out and why it's a paradox is that you actually consume more because it's more useful more utility and, and uh, applies to more applications um where we become more efficient with gas people are like oh we'll consume less gas then but you just do more cool things with it oh is is this similar to um you know if you have if you have a road you know i think la runs into this problem where you have a road and then you know you have a certain number of cars and then uh, it's, you know, there's a traffic jam and you just expand the road that, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, less traffic on the road, but it actually just grows. <laughs> yeah. I think you could probably definitely apply it to traffic. And if uh, the, the pictures of LA traffic that I've seen are any indication, it seems that that is the case. Uh, I'm not sure if Jevons Paradox has been applied to that. It's supposed to be a positive, though. Like you're not. That road's not providing any more utility, so I don't think, uh, arguably, it's providing less utility because you're not getting to where you want to be as quickly as you thought you would. Now you got me thinking here, Matt. We're uh, we're going down the uh, the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Shit, man. So what? Uh, where can we learn more about you? What you and Tony are building? How can we help? If uh, if you guys need help and what uh yeah what do you want to leave the freaks with here yeah absolutely i, I guess like really uh, i mean you can check us out um we have a we're not uh we're i guess we're rebranding from atomic loans to uh atomic.finance and uh kind of the first product we're putting out in kind of the bitcoin space specifically with with dlcs is, is our odds project um so you can check check that out there but um you know the the main only thing i asked from the freaks is you know if you're a if you're a developer and you, you know you're interested in dlcs or you're interested in able to create financial contracts on bitcoin um you should check out uh the the dlc spec that uh, uh we've been working on um with uh with with uh, that Surebits and crypto garage have been working on to kind of get a standard for for uh, for dlcs out there um so that you know any any clients that are really created with it will be uh you know interoperable in the future so yeah well matthew it's uh it's young men like yourself that give me hope it's crazy to see a 22 year old uh, creating products like the products you're creating and thinking the way you're thinking as a uh, as a millennial boomer who who can only write newsletters and, and shittily edit podcasts. Uh, I'm always impressed by the, the amount of uh, impressive work that you guys put out. 
uh, you and Ben Carman, last two uh, last two DLC guests under the age of 22, 22 and under. It's crazy. Um, so shout out to you guys. Yeah, can I appreciate we f- that. I'm gonna I'm gonna change my uh, my Twitter bio to uh, Boomer Millennial. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, freaks, go check this stuff out. Uh, I think we did enough Ethereum bashing to to repent for your for your work on on Ethereum. So I think uh, I think the freaks will take it relatively easy on you. I know I saw somebody uh, shitting on you on Twitter for taking consensus dirty money. Um, Leon the fact checker, I think it was. (laughs) Yes, Leon, if you're listening. Hopefully you have a different impression now. Uh, Where can we find you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm uh, at Matthew J. Black, and uh, be uh, be tweeting mostly. uh, I've been trying to tweet some more DLC stuff lately, so uh, we'll be pushing that. Hell yeah. All right, I'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. Uh, Again, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your evening. That's all we got tonight, freaks. Peace and love. Take care.